Hi, this is Ed. And uh, on another of our summer specials, I talked to Musa Akongwa, poet, author, writer, journalist, podcaster, musician, artist. I think I've got it all in there. And we talk uh, a little bit about his life and some of the new work he's got out, which I, I think is well worth exploring. Um, we mentioned the books and the podcasts and the, the music. And uh, then we talk about football and I wanted to have a, a pretty wide ranging discussion with him. Um, if you know him from Stadio, they cover all sorts of stuff. So we talk about uh, some of the sort of managerial merry-go-round this summer, potential transfers, talk a lot about United, about the European Super League and about uh, the Euros and Copper America. So enjoy this conversation and we'll see you on the next one. So I'm here with Musa Akongwa and, um, well, he's a, what is he, a writer, broadcaster, musician, poet, author, podcaster. Have I missed anything out there, Musa? No, it's good. It's good. You got it all. You got it all, man. You got it all. Thank you. Appreciate it, Ed. Um, so a lot of recent stuff has come out um, from you and uh, I, uh, where, where should we start? You've got a book with Ian Wright coming up. I think it's a... A kids' book following in the uh, in the um, the footsteps of uh, Marcus Rashford, I guess. Uh, tell us about that, and then we'll go into your, some of your other stuff. Thanks. Yeah, really excited. So the book is called Striking Out. It's coming out in September, early September. And I guess as a shortcut, it's almost like um, imagine better like Beckham. But Beckham was actually in the book, so it basically features Ian as he is now. So fifty-seven-year-old Ian. Um, it's, it's obviously a fictional story. But it's basically a story where Ian has a chance meeting with a brilliant young footballer from East London who is struggling to make it and they end up getting on really well. And Ian's like, you know what, let's see if we can help you make it both on and off the field. Um, because Ian sees a lot of the kid in himself. Uh, outstanding young talent. <clears throat> outstanding young talent, but also going through some really tough stuff at home that Ian knows all about. So yeah, that's the, that's the book. Really excited by that, actually. Um, that was a lot of fun to write because... It was writing a book for a kind of like 10-year-old plus age bracket. But the dream is for people of all age ranges to read right. it. So it's written at that kind of pitch up level, yeah. There's plenty of fun, yeah. Nice, yeah. And, I mean, you, you have a lot of range with your writing. So um, you also brought out earlier this year, in the end, it was all about love, which is sort of a part memoir and part fiction, part sort of lament about uh, the uh, the troubles freelance writers have getting paid. Um, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. And it's got this um, for for those for listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet. It's got this um, secondhand writing style, which is can can be a bit jarring with authors yeah. when that happens. And but then at the same time, it's um, it's 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 very intimate about your life, or it's a, it's a fictionalized version of of yeah. your life, isn't it? And um, integrating into Berlin, what Berlin means to you, the people. There's a lot of characters. Um, how it feels to be a, a black man in Berlin or riding the train. Um, yeah, of course. Yeah, 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 and it's kind of really, I mean, short stories and novella, um, but, but fascinating book. Thanks very much, and I appreciate it. And I, I feel that book was, it wrote itself because there was so much in there I had to say about, you know, reaching 40 and, you know, love, faith, racism, refugees, um, you know, my parents are refugees, like, so all of that. And I, I love, I mean, you, you, you said it right, range. I love writing a range of things. I'd hate to be typecast as like 
you know, a football writer or a children's writer. I want to just do all the things. So I thought if I put out as much different stuff as possible, then there's no chance of being categorised. So I think so far so good. And then um, one of them, uh, which is a, uh, an Eton College memoir, which is about your time yeah. at Eton and um, uh, perhaps your time missing out on being a member of the Tory cabinet. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Someone said that. An ex-girlfriend said that. She said, if you, if, you had, if you shared their politics, she said, you'd be like, <laughs> you'd probably be at that party by now. I think there's four old Etonians in the cabinet right now and a couple about your age Four, so that many oh my goodness is that yeah. many oh my goodness yeah wow. yeah well, well there you go uh, Musa Kongwa MP for uh, where <laughs> East oh, Berlin like, someone like they like they like to put you in sort of like Beaconsfield isn't it sort of like these sort of like a uh, nice safe yeah Bexley Heath, you know, Bromley, these kind of like uh, London suburbs that's they put me I think yeah yeah uh, I mean it's a, it's a fascinating um fascinating sort of topic to um to cover really and um especially for those people who don't know you as uh um your full history and um yeah, like right. kind of yeah. some of the background um uh, and then football so um i'm sure there's many listeners who also listen to to stadio um it's uh two blokes speaking about football but that doesn't really give the full picture does it about um, <laughs> well, the tone and the themes that you have in in Stadio each week. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, thanks a lot. Ed. I think the um, when we started doing Stadio, Ryan was like, "Yeah, that's the last thing the world needs." And you know, two blokes about football, but um, we try to look at football on and off the field in quite a fun conceptual way. So we might spend an entire episode talking about passing, like you know your favourite through balls. So like everyone knows the Veron pass, the Solskjaer, which is like probably my favourite United through ball. I think. Um, so we did like a whole episode on like the art of passing. Uh, we got to know Ian Wright through an interview we did with him about the art of finishing because we're like, we want to talk about like break down what an elite striker does. Right, like a Van Destroy, like Van Destroy against Basel, the classic when he goes to the far post, the near post, and then like chips in from the near post. Right. There's so many different decisions that go into that. So we go into like a quite granular detail about aspects of football on the field. But we also like zoom out and look at like, um, like the, the European Super League, for example. So we went in on that, like, and attacked it very aggressively. <laughs> um, vigorous critique of the owners of Manchester United. So yeah, we have um, we like to keep people guessing. I think uh, keep it quite free flowing and original. So, yeah, so. I mean it. It is, and it's also a blend of of culture as well. And um, I'm always amazed by um, just how many different leagues and teams you can encompass in one episode. So. Um, either you're very well researched or you're watching 60 games a week and how you can do We're watching it. a lot. It's both. Yeah, we're watching yeah. a lot. No, it's just me and Ryan. So, yeah, we're watching a lot of football. Um, Ryan, one weekend, he's 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 the best at it. He, he watched 13 games, I think, one weekend, um, full games. So we watch a lot of football. Um, but it's like, you know, anyone that studied any degree at uni, you do. Like, I did a law degree. And, like, if you if you study you know, one one course of multiple subjects, you study enough of them, they start, you start seeing connections between them. So you might watch a lot of French football, a lot of Mexican football, a lot of Italian, you start seeing like common threads. It's really quite exciting. And when you start noticing characters popping up in different leagues, uh, then it gets really cool because like, wow, football's just like one big like organism. Like it's amazing. So yeah. Yeah, I think, I think we'll get, we'll get on to some of these um, topics, I think. Um, thinking, yeah. I mean, uh, we've we've just done our review show on... on uh, NQAT and we'll put that out um it's probably out by the time you're listening to this folks but um so I thought uh with our 
for our chat about football, we'd talk a little bit about what's going to happen this summer because there's a lot of themes, I think, in in European football, especially that are going to play out and um, a lot of moving pieces. And but before yeah. before we get to that, just uh, you're uh, you're there. Uh, people listening can't see it because this is a podcast, but uh, you have a big Righty's House microphone. Um, yeah. So how did <laughs> that come about? It's a fun podcast. Yeah. So this is wild. So um, Righty's House is also on the kind of Ringer FC feed as as right. Stadio. So so I was about on Twitter a few years ago. I was. Um, I was just sending some tweets and then and Ian, Ian Wright starts following me on Twitter. I was like, okay, that, this is one of my favourite footballers ever. I love people's favourite footballer. And um, so I dropped him a DM after a few hours. Didn't want to seem too keen, you know, and I was like, oh, like, thanks for the follow. Um, my stuff is a bit random. I hope you find my tweets interesting. So like, yeah, no, no, I enjoy your stuff. Like, I've been following it for a bit. And I was like, oh, he'd read my stuff, like my political stuff, as it turned out. So we get talking, and after about six, so no, you know, leave it that. You never want to get too excited when some of that follows you, if they do at all. You don't want to sort of scare them off with your like wild tweets. <laughs> after about six months, I thought, you know what? Let me see if he'd fancy coming on Stadio to talk about the art of finishing. So I sent um, a message to his management, um, and they were like, he loved it. Like he's received, he received so many messages. He says no to almost anything, but the way that we said, like, we want you to just break down goal scores. No one asked him to do that. Yeah. So we did that episode, The Art of Finish. We did one with him and one with Gary Lineker, and they were both unbelievable experiences because you had them talking about there's a moment, there's a goal when um Ian Wright chips David Weather um John Lukic using David Weatherall as a shield. And the way that Ian breaks down what he does, the thought process is mind-blowing. Bergkamp plays a ball and it's a really bad pass. And which is never happens. Bergkamp doesn't do that. The ball must hits Ian in the face. And he looks up and Bergkamp's just standing there going, go on then. And he's like, I'm in the final third by myself. Bergkamp's not making a run. So I've got to improvise. And he makes like three brilliant decisions in like, well, like two seconds. And it's one of the goals of the season. And that's how it started. And we, he, he so got into that, that a few months later, when we went to Spotify um, during the pandemic, we kept talking and then Spotify were like, look, you get on well with him. We're going to offer him a podcast. Why don't you and... Uh, Ryan be like revolving guests on the show so it right. all came very like perfect yeah yeah it's it's interesting when some of the smarter footballers and and right is uh one of those are able to to break down the game in in ways others can't and I, I don't know whether you saw the interview between uh, Rio and Pep Guardiola ahead of the Champions League final and Guardiola oh, wow, gives this masterclass on on Chelsea's tactics and, and basically says, look, this is how they're going to play and this is how they're going to beat us. And then it played out and it, it was yeah. it was fascinating because you could see, you know, even in, in that short conversation, the sort of genius of, of Guardiola and, and how he's able to think laterally about the game in, in ways others can't. Um, but then the fun bit was, of course, uh, City played exactly <laughs> into happened. Chelsea's trap and yeah, exactly. lost as yeah, a result. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I really feel like, and we'll get to like tactics and everything later, but I think that Pep knew exactly what Tuchel was going to do, obviously. And he almost was like, I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't. He had to change something, didn't he? Because Tuchel had worked out what City were doing. Like, you've gone yeah. that long playing without a striker. Well, Tuchel knows there's a way you can't hurt you. Like, does he really, do you really tempt fate with a back three if you've got an Erling Haaland up front for City? I don't think you do. I don't think you tempt fate like that. I think you keep it honest. I think you keep it simple. Um, but I think, unfortunately, that the success of City, they, they baked in the failure as well. They, lay, they let themselves, if you don't, at the end of the day, like, I know I'm going to sound a bit like, 
Luddite here. But it's a bit like the dragon in the Game of Thrones. Like, Holland is a dragon, right? And they don't have... So they don't have a dragon. And yes. as Aguero has declined in strength, there are some things all you can do. yeah. Yeah, sometimes all you need a crossbow. And they don't yeah. have it. They don't, and I think if they do upgrade City, I reckon Holland has to be the next thing for them. They've got to go for someone like that who is just basically like, who will steal the game. It's interesting whether whether Pep would take such an individual player on because um, he's, uh, I mean, he's obviously brilliant, uh, mm. but he's a little ungainly. And, you know, there's one school of thought that says that Holland isn't, is you know, doesn't make you better as a team. Much much like uh, when uh, Ibrahimovic was at United for two seasons, the football was mm. dreadful and Ibrahim yeah, was scoring was. bags of goals. And and um, I don't know whether Dortmund are a better team necessarily with better style-wise. So that'd be an interesting mix um, if, if City do go for that. I, I don't know whether they'll spend that they money. They need to adapt. I think what they, I will say in they need to change for sure, yeah. Yeah, what I, what I will say in Haaland's defence um, is that his combination play is surprisingly good for a player of that dimension. You know, like someone like Van Nistelrooy. No, I adore Van Nistelrooy. Probably my favourite United striker. But Van Nistelrooy did have that thing of like, the attack went through him. Yes. Uh, and the unusual thing about Haaland, the weird thing about Haaland is Haaland is very good at deferring. He's very good at like dragging people and allowing people to run into gaps, which is why Mike, is why uh, Marco Royce, the later part of the season, scored so many goals because... Holland was like very happy to like vacate, and you very rarely see that. And Lukaku actually, bless him, Lukaku he didn't have the best time at United towards the end, but Lukaku actually was quite good at that Inter, very good at like just getting out of everyone's way. Right. And if you can get a night, well, he's something like Ibrahimovic. Unfortunately, wherever his career has gone, Ibra has kind of you know great player, but he's not one to vacate the stage, is he? He, he certainly is not. No, he's um, not on or, on or off social media. Yeah. Yeah, uh, well, it's it's one of the sort of revolving stories that I think will be interesting this summer is exactly how City respond to that Champions League defeat. Um, mm. Because Pep has signed up for another five years, so the doubts about him and his commitment appear to have gone. And right. and, and so, you know, I don't know whether that's that was the thing necessarily holding City back from, you know, a third or fourth wave of nation-state spending or not, but they might do this summer, they might. Yeah, why wouldn't they? I mean, it works very well for them. The you know the Abu Dhabi project, and it's a project. It's worked very well for them. Like it's put them on the map. It's an incredible piece of branding, like from a corporate point of view. And you're like, no, United is the same. United are trying to do the same branding thing. Well, they don't care so much about the image, but um, you know, city the city project is. Why would you change anything? They they're going to be back in that final under Pep. I think if you look at the the disarray in which the major clubs in Europe are. And the lack of firepower, certainly those clubs. There's no reason why City can't just be back here again this time next season. There's no reason at all. Well, sure, with with both of the major Spanish clubs in a real mess and doing free transfers only this summer, you imagine. Oh, my God. Uh, bargain I, basement. Bargain basement Barca. Yeah. It's really brutal. They, they really are. And, and Real have to shift something like £100 million off their, their annual budget. I think something like yeah. that. So, um, you know, I think I think your analysis of of City um, having a, a really good chance of of being in this final again, you know, rings very true. And and you know, thinking about some of the other giants as well around Europe, obviously United are some distance. Mm. Are United still a giant? Um, <laughs> to, to be confirmed this summer. And and Juve, yeah. uh, we'll see where they go. Um, 
Um, obviously, um, they've got Allegri back there, but Cristiano may leave. They have budget issues too. And, and Bayern under Nagelsmann, well, we'll see. You know, Yeah, it's... like they're all in transition and City aren't. City aren't. And that is why they kind of have to be the front runner again next year. But yeah, we'll see. We'll see. So, I mean, um, uh, you you follow well uh, every club in Europe. Um, <laughs> it's Stadio is tending to go <laughs> by, but but <laughs> I think you keep one eye on United as well. And it's going to be course, a, yeah. it's going to be an interesting interesting time this summer for United. I mean, um, I, I'm very much in two minds about uh, what might happen here because you know what one one scenario that feels very true is that the uh, the Glazers have been spooked by the the ferocity of the fan backlash. To the right. Super League. Yeah, that was surprising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, at least superficially they have. And they they may believe a shiny toy will will buy off the fans, and it certainly would buy off a certain section. I think it would. Not not necessarily the people breaking into Old Trafford. But then there's no, another scenario yeah. that says, look, there's no budget. You know, 200 million or so it's cost United the pandemic. And um, you know, what what are they gonna do? Uh take up a, another loan in order to play, uh, spend money. So, you know, I'm kind of in two minds what might happen. Um, you know, and given that Oli is going to be around, they're not firing yeah. him and he may well get a new contract. And that makes it's funny. Like United are, the way they are on the field is a perfect metaphor for the way they are off the field. So across the field in key areas, they're at like 75 to 80% of where they should be. And that's good enough to keep things as they are, but it's not good enough to to win the biggest prizes. Yeah. That makes sense. It's, it's this awful bind. It's this awful, awful bind. So you've got like the brilliant Mason Greenwood, who was maybe a season and a half away from just becoming a lights out. Yep. But then you don't in that time bring in a player ahead of him in the queue because you you stunt his development. You don't want that. So it's a kind of twist or stick. And you've got Marcus Rashford, who is knackered and he's been playing with an injury. Yeah. Um, and who needs... There needs to be better attack and coordination in the final third for United, right? You saw against Villarreal. Villarreal is a good example of like where Bruno Fernandes, endless improvisation, endless improvisation. But sometimes you need to work off sheet music. And the problem with Villarreal, Villarreal, they saw it kind of like, look, Bruno's basically going to innovate, 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 and he'll get bored and he'll get frustrated. He'll keep trying to play. He's trying to hit the killer pass, but you can't because the pass doesn't exist. That there was no team. space. Yeah, no, they, they, there was, no was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it really brilliant. was a, a final of, of, I mean, as was the Champions League final of, of you know, coaching. Um, yes. And you could really see it on the field. And, and Villarreal, you know, of course, you could call it sort of parking the bus or anti football, but uh, they knew exactly what their the plan was and they squeezed yeah. the space. And, and United play with space. They, don't they do play play with space. Field. Absolutely. Yeah. They are ruthless. United are one of the best teams at exploiting gaps. Because they're so naturally talented and they have players that love, they've got, they've got maybe the most talented I would call, not freestyle footballers as in like doing kick-ups and fancy skills, they're good at that. They're amazing at improvising, all of them. Rashford is yeah. just, oh, Rashford against Leipzig is peak Rashford, right? Now, Villarreal were like, okay, we're going to take away all of that. We're going to compress all the gaps and make you play through us diagonally. We're going to stagger it. We're going to be like, they're like the, sort of the tiles of like an armadillo, like, where the amount of times Fernandez tries to play that through ball in a straight line, and they're like, we've been, that's night and day to us. Whereas if you have someone like uh, Tuchel or Guardiola, they're shifting the ball. I mean, actually, Pep didn't shift the ball on. No, not enough. Yeah. Not, not enough, not. But, but, but Chelsea in particular, 
the ability of these teams to like shift across the final third. That's something United don't do. Yes, yeah, there is there is not an obvious pattern of play in in United's attacking. It 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 is. I mean, it does. I mean, I know I know this is. uh, you know, fairly reductive as a piece of analysis, but but it is a team of of individuals and highly weighted towards that. And and Bruno's ability to take risks. I mean, I, I think I was looking at the stats and his pass completion rate on long passes. So I think that's anything over thirty yards is about fifty percent. So he's wow. he's uh, he's playing the roulette table every time and hoping it comes up. Red. Um, and they know he'll do that. That's the thing. There's so much data available that the opposition players know he'll do that. Now, this is why I think they love Sancho. If you look, I mean, you know this, but Solskjaer, one of the most impressive Solskjaer guys was, was, I think it was 03 when he played as the right, on the right flank. Sancho and, and uh, Solskjaer actually have very similar playmaking profiles. Right. See the way that um, Solskjaer would like drag himself out to the right and play these lovely angled balls in between the fullback and the centre-back. Sancho par excellence. The ability... Sancho basically is amazing because he's so fast. So he gets into the final third very quickly, but then he has pause. He's so patient. He will sprint into the final third on the edge of the box and he won't cut towards goal. He'll wait for everyone to catch him up. He'll play keep ball. He'll overlap with the full back and he's so smart. And I think Solskjaer looks at that and goes, I may not coach complex attack systems in the final third. I'll buy playmakers who are smart enough. It's actually quite Mourinho. I will buy mm-hmm. playmakers. It's not disrespect. I don't mean it's a disrespect. I mean no, as no, in that's right. Mourinho, peak Mourinho wasn't really too fussed about those complex systems because he bought playmakers <clears throat> who were so good, like Robin uh, and Duff, who could just create it. And I think that's the Solskjaer method. Now, the problem with that is that's very, very effective until the quarterfinals and semifinals of every major tournament and every title race. And it keeps making you fall short. And I've said this about Solskjaer before. It's not a disrespectful thing. It's not meant like that. It's like I've always said there is an extra 15%. There's an extra 15% in, in the top. There's maybe like four managers in the world that have the extra 15%, right? Yeah. But, and that's it. But, but the problem is they're the ones you keep meeting. They're the ones you keep meeting. And, and I don't know how um, Solskjaer breaks that cycle. Of course, you know, the ownership and coming back to, to um, my original sort of question mm. I posed is, you know, for them, it doesn't matter. Like winning the European Cup and winning the Premier League isn't, isn't that important. It does, I it's think not, he breaks it. It's not I think he gets an amazing number two. Model. I think Solskjaer gets an amazing number two. I think that's the answer. Because he has mastered the man management, right? He's extracted performances of people like Pogba. We never thought were possible. We considered that Pogba was out the door like, around Christmas. It was unthinkable. So he's done that. But I think an amazing number two... And then for Solskjaer to kind of be like, look, I will trust in y- your methods. That could be the key, I think. Yeah. It'd be, it'd be interesting if there is any shake-up. But, I mean, I don't necessarily see it coming. He seems to have a lot of trust in in Carrick and, and Phelan and McKenna as his core um, coaching mm. team. But I wonder whether he recognises himself the limitations um, and and this summer we'll you know we'll see we'll see whether United do the sensible thing because it's I think I think it's like it's blindingly obvious, isn't it, that uh, a central defender, a defensive midfielder, and a right-sided forward uh, are what will take this team forward. And um, uh, I'm bored of myself saying that. Very bored. We've been saying that. it for what? How many years? A decade. It's so wild. I can't think of a major asset. It's the equivalent of like having a a convertible and never pulling the roof up, even in the driving rain. Like it, United's midfield weakness has been 
and central defence to a certain extent, it's been that way for about 10 years. Even when United were still winning, you know, Premier League titles, there was a gap in the depth. And you know that Solskjaer does know there is a problem because he's terrified of his bench. He is mm-hmm. terrified of his bench. Sometimes the inaction tells you as much as the action. Oh, for sure. So he, know, he knows what's wrong. He knows what's wrong. And listen, you don't play with players of that quality um, and remain unaware of what the real deep issues are systemically. And also, frankly, as well, everything that we are saying on this podcast has been said in a WhatsApp group to him a dozen times a week. They know. They're, they're not stupid. They know what's going yeah. on. Well, that kind of brings me to to the sort of merry-go-round of players that may or may not happen this summer. So, you know, we talked about Holland at Brashear. It looks like that they are quite prepared to sort of dig their heels in as they did with Sancho last season and, and mm. um, not let him go, even if it's sort of double the fee that they might get the year afterwards. And then there's the question of Mbappe, uh, PSG, will he see out the final year of his contract or... or can Real magic up some money from somewhere? And then in uh, the Premier League, Harry Kane. Um, he, he has shocked me, actually, with how kind of open he is about wanting to right. move. And um, what will happen with these three players? And, and how does that sort of determine the, the winners and the losers for the season oh, to wow. come? Oh, wow. See, I, th- I, think Kane, I think Kane's agents should be beating a path at the M62. I think, I think they need to get... I think. Um, they need to get to Manchester. Harry Kane to Manchester City, I think, would be amazing because I think he wants that Premier, that Premier League goal-scoring record. And I think it's a really good fit. And also, like, he won't get the kind of hate because, you know, Spurs to City, it won't be like sort of... It's not like Campbell to Campbell to Arsenal. I think it's a clean, clean fit. Yeah. Um, and it allows City to kind of play their game very naturally. And like they get a few good seasons out of him, it allows Ferran and Torres time to come through. And they do need someone to knit their forward line together and to give central defenders different kinds of problems. Um, Holland, I think, stays at Dortmund for another year. It just makes sense. There's a really great core of young players there. Winning the German Cup, the DFB Pokal, was a huge deal for them as a bonding experience. And frankly, I think Dortmund have got a really good chance to make a run at the Bundesliga and the Champions League next year. Because Bayern are in a big transition now in a big transition with Nagelsmann going there. It's an unknown quantity. Dortmund, towards the end of the season, put together a really good run of form and they've got a serious firepower for the Champions League. And I almost feel like they should say, the way they should sell it, the Dortmund um, aristocracy, the kind of Dortmund like management or board of directors be like, listen, Erling, going to go and be a huge striker in the Premier League or La Liga, more likely Premier League because they've got more money. Um, not that he's greedy, but because Barcelona Real just probably can't really afford him at this point. Um, but give us 12 more months. And 12 more months playing with Sancho and Bellingham and Reyna, and I say that as someone that watches these people regularly, that is an astonishing group of players. Oh, yeah. Um, it's amazing. Mbappe's a funny one, because Mbappe's had some very patchy form. Until he went supernova in the Champions League, he was having a tough season domestically, but still ended up top scorer. Um, Mbappe's a funny... He's 27 a funny goals in, in Ligue 1, which isn't the Farmers League, but uh, it, it's, still, it's, no, it's it's a fast, it's, it's not a farmer's league. It's a very, very quick league. Poch yeah. says something interesting. Pochino said, Liga is the fittest league. And you can see it because they're so disrespectful. It's almost like they thought, you know, we can't beat PSG through football talent. We're just going to harass, we're just going to harass them. We're going to harry them yeah. as much as we have for 90 minutes. And so all the teams are basically super fit because it's the only way you can hang with the top teams. Yeah. 
And now, you don't watch PSG this year. I mean, they obviously lost to Lille um, in the title race. That's a very good league to be in for maybe another year or so, I'd say. It's not a bad league to be in. And why would Mbappe move, especially when big clubs aren't really shelling out post-pandemic? It makes sense to stay for one more year, see where the lie of the land is, see what the managerial situation is at PSG. Because Mbappe's got time. He's got time. All of that. And also, frankly, the, the two clubs that he might be best placed to go to Real Barca, they don't have any money. Yeah, they are, they are broke. Uh, they might be able to come up with the wages um, in a year's time, uh, and, but not the 200 million euro fee or Absolutely. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and then it kind of leads me to, to the question of um, Ronaldo and Messi, really. I mean, it seems like Messi may be flirting with staying at, at Barcelona now and, yeah. and, and not taking City's cash, which is, uh, I mean, you know, part of me was kind of luridly looking at that, thinking, well, that might be kind of interesting to see him in, in the Premier League for a couple of years, even if it's at City. Um, I wouldn't want it. Do you know why I wouldn't want it? Because, oh my God, the parochial pundits would be awful. They're, oh, Messi can't cut him. Like he's, you know, he's in his mid-30s. <laughs> you know, there'd be all this talk about how Messi is and all that, and like someone would tackle him. You know, like as a, a fullback from a newly promoted cyber tackle, be like, oh, look, Messi's been owned. It's like, well, just no. Yes. So it- I, I almost... The indignity of it. I didn't want the indignity of it for Messi. Um, and he had an incredible season. Like the numbers, I was looking back at the numbers, like Ryan sent me the, the breakdown. Yeah. Messi was leading attackers in every single major statistical category. Yeah. And that's Messi at like 80% speed. That's like right. That's a scary, yeah, scary. Because he's all the talent's still there and he's adapted his game um, in, a, in a smart way. I, I mean, I, I always did wonder whether Messi would drop deeper and deeper. Actually, he's gone further and further forward as his career has, has gone on. 30 goals in La Liga this season and it was, it's, it's a pretty poor Barcelona side. So Really um, poor, shameful you know, waste of talent. But things, I think under Pep, I think under Pep he drops deeper, that's the thing. I think under Pep, Messi... I mean, that's a pairing that should just never have split up, frankly. I mean, I know that he had to leave Barca Pep for very good reason, but those two working together were, that they were like nothing ever seen. I mean, I still talk about that 2011, well, we all do, we try not to, but the 2011 final, Barcelona beating Man United 3-1. I turned to someone in a bar, I was watching in bar kicking Shoreditch, and I turned to this guy, a Barcelona fan, it was 2-1 at the time. And I said, you know what, like, there's no shame in this. It's 2-1 and it's a thrashing. I've yeah. never seen football. I've never seen football like this. Never seen it. Yeah. No, it's interesting those big big moments. I was deeply disappointed about the 2009 final and even yes. the Europa League final just gone. I mean, it's the mm. Europa League, but um, you know, it, it felt like a, a, an important it's moment winnable. for United and and the 2011 final doesn't fit into that category. I mean, of course, yeah. you know, it was uh it was an insane moment when uh, Rooney equalised, and there was that brief moment of hope, very quickly yeah. extinguished um, by by you know an, an outstanding Barcelona side, the, the best Barcelona, the best side I've seen, I think, in, I've in never my seen lifetime. Like yeah, yeah. Seen, I mean, yeah, it's yeah. Um, United couldn't touch them at all, and Ferguson had no answers, and it's uh, whatever he tried, you know, and 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 that team got more and more frustrated as the game. Um, went on. It was a, it was a boxer getting toyed with, wasn't it? You know, I've never seen him so despondent. I've never seen Ferguson so despondent as after the 2011 final. I think when he genuinely was like, there's a famous video on YouTube actually of them doing one touch Barca before the game. It's like a, like a sort of drone eye view, and the speed they are hammering the ball to feet in this like yeah. you know, rondo, the sort of um, pig in the middle. 
uh, Ferguson after 2011, 09, he looked disappointed because he knew that we had a plan and we kind of conceded too early and all the rest of it. And also we had the Fletcher injury to contend with, which was a real loss. But 2011, generally, I mean, this is why I will always love Wayne Rooney, despite, you know, the tragedy of his later years yeah. and the challenges. Wayne Rooney's bravery in big games, this man went looking for responsibility. He, he had no right to score a goal that good. And it's, it's one of the big, it's one of the sort of the big forgotten, it's one of the forgotten great goals, actually. It is, yeah. Um, switches it across the keeper and it, it's a beautiful finish. Yeah, I, I, I saw um, recently, and uh, I know we're going on tangents, but you know, hey, no, that's, good, good. That's, that's, that's what it's we do pod- on this. It's a podcast, yeah. Yeah, that's what we do all the time um, on this one. Um I, had, uh, I saw a sort of highlights package of, of Rooney at Euro 2004 recently. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What, what a player he was. And, you know, as good as anything um, anywhere in the world at 18 and uh, the maturity with which, you know, his game, not you know, technically but tactically as well and the positions he took up. Oh, my God. Like against Croatia. He looked as if he was about to score in every... You know, like there's a, there were very few players that had that thing where... Rooney against Fenerbahce, he looked as if he was about to scorn every run forward. It was in that Euros, he was absolutely astonishing. There's a, Rooney's first touch, because of criticism, Rooney's first touch has always been psychological and fitness related. For me, when yeah. Rooney, Rooney in the, it's a 2005 FA Cup final, when he peeled up to the right flank most, and he was man of the match, in my opinion. He was absolutely amazing. Like Rooney, like chipping David James, like stuff like that. This is, like Rooney was an artist, right? And there is a classic player where, it really is, you know, people talk about Rooney's lifestyle, but there's also like your body and fitness issues and like how Rooney's body was never in his favour. He wasn't blessed with, I would say, the natural sort of physiology, physique. But peak Rooney was one of the most overwhelming footballers and the best possibles I've ever seen. He was a stunning, a true great. It, is, it is. I had a pleasure of watching the uh, George Best documentary on um, BT Sport, really. It's a, it's a little bit of a... Hediography, um, yeah, of course, yeah, of course, of course. It's and and we've all so, seen the clips. Um, and I had a chat to Callum Best um, about that, which is kind of interesting conversation with a, uh, you know, uh, you know, obviously his son and uh, an interesting relationship with his father and um, yeah. and everything that went on there. And um, um, and uh, you know, he, uh, I think he talked about Rooney on that one, how much he loved him, and it was um, oh really, George yeah, Best loved Rooney. Um, and George Best remained a United fan right to the end, you know, passionate. Wow, that's Passionate amazing. United fan. And, um, and uh, you know, just kind of made, made me think about, like, how, how we evaluate players and, and sometimes the story around them overwhelms the, the, the product on the pitch, thing, doesn't it? And that happened yeah. with Rooney. We're going to be a lot kinder to Rooney as time goes on. Um, do you know why? And Rooney had the thing about great players. Rooney scored great goals in matches that didn't matter. In, they did matter because they were cup games. But see, was the couple he scored against uh, Middlesbrough, the incredible chip, right, and the, like, yeah. the, airborne, the airborne volley. And like he would score goals like that, almost like it's a demonstration. It was almost like it was, for me, great footballers don't just give you trophies. They give you moments, right? They give you moments. Um, whether they're slide tackles, diving headers, whatever. And Rooney understood the need to entertain. I don't mean entertain in some frivolous way. I mean, as in people have come for a spectacle. People have come for escapers and they've come to see something they cannot get in their nine to fives or these days they're sort of, what, six till six till 11 is the hours people are working these days. And Rooney understood the need to elevate. And that is 
that is what places him in the category of artist, which is as pretentious as that sounds. I think it's up there. Like George, you know, George was taking his George Best taking his boot off and playing the pass. It's that level of of ingenuity and invention. There's so much talk about how Rooney sacrificed himself for Ronaldo, um, so Ronaldo could be the big goal scorer. I think that's also fair. I've said that a lot. I think that's fair. There's a amount. I always talk about a game when they're breaking through on goal. I think it was a Reading match or an FA Cup game where they're through on goal. It's like two on one and Ronaldo doesn't square it. And Ronaldo finishes it. And Rooney jogs away, slightly disappointed, and wheels around and comes and congratulates him. And there's a second of hesitation, not because Rooney's being, um, he's not angry at Ronaldo, but there's a disappointment that it didn't come square. And I thought that sums it up. Yeah, that whole dynamic there is like Ronaldo could never have elevated without Rooney's sacrifice. I've always, I will always believe that. I'll always love him for that. Uh, and and I think, I mean, I think you're right. And um, you know, I uh, lo- long time listeners of of this particular podcast will know that we um, we bashed on Rooney for many years. It became the hashtag agenda for a while. Uh, yeah, just, yeah. And, and but. Um, but mostly that was out of disappointment with exactly because you always understood what he was, yeah, yeah, and yeah, just yeah. the the decline that happened and the frustration that you know he would find a game uh, the season under David Moyes, for example, he found an extra gear of physicality that season. It's extraordinary, yeah. In the derby, the four-one defeat when he scores the free kick, and it's like again utterly fearless in a losing cause. Yeah. yeah, the amount of games that you, you could actually put together like a top ten of Rooney performances, Rooney masterpieces and losing courses. So like, my God, this man didn't disappear along with the rest of the team. He didn't. And and uh, at no point did that happen right to the the end. But it's, it's almost as if he had, a, you know, a chronic disease and, and his body wouldn't do what his brain told him to do. And, and the decline was really sharp as a result. And um, Yeah, super strange. Yeah, the touch was so weird. Everyone talk about Rooney's touch. I'm like, no, we, we remember it. We've seen it. We've seen... Rooney do astonishing things with technique, and it just, like I say, it feels so psychological all the time. His his debut uh, for England against Turkey, I think he's seventeen years old. He plucks the ball out of the air and hits a sixty yard pass, and he's you're like floating. What what is what is this player that um, has you know has hit the the big stage already? And and you know he always had that, and um, it, the the sharp decline was was really sad as a, as a result. One one of the players who hasn't seemingly declined physically is, is Cristiano and there's a lot right. of talk about you know whether United of course have explored bringing him back to Old Trafford many times over the last decade or so um and and ironically is irony the right one you know at this moment right at the end of Cristiano's career um there's an opportunity to do that for for astonishingly large wages but probably yeah. no fee and you know I wonder whether you know, all the bells will be ringing in in Joel Glazer's head, going, "Yeah, oh, yes, we should do this," um, and whether United might explore that one this this summer. I think it's a funny one with Ronaldo because he scored a lot of goals um, for Juventus, and weirdly enough, look at the success of Cavani. It's not a wildly, it's not a, from a purely pragmatic point of view, it is not a ridiculous thing to do for the next eighteen months. It's actually um, in, in, a, in a footballing sense. You don't have someone who gets in the long-term way of Greenwoods. And you have... The United attack has mixed has missed a, a fixed point, actually. Sure. I personally think that you need to have Pogba in the final third as much as possible. Yes. I think, that, yeah, you, you need to have an, a, an absolutely ball-dominant 
defence midfield. Like this is the thing I said to a friend. I was talking to Carl Anker of the Athletic of that parish, yeah. and I said it's so weird how the Manchester United team is becoming perfectly formed for Pogba just when he seems about to leave it. It's the first time United to the last sort of third of the season is the te- is the team that Pogba thought he was cunt- that thought he was joining. This is the tragedy of Paul Pogba at United. Like I think he genuinely has an affection for the club. Mm-hmm. And I think that he arrived at United and was like, I've been slightly missold something. Mourinho was determined to fall out with him because Mourinho is determined to fall out with anyone who has a greater star power. And Mourinho calls it psychological, but it's really just Mourinho's insecurities playing out on a kind of very Freudian level. Um, you know, Mourinho, we said Mourinho's like the kind of the alligator who tries to eat the hippo. Like his stomach is, his appetite is, is bigger than his stomach. And he tried to devour Sergio Ramos, didn't work. He could eat Casillas. But he, he could eat Pogba, where he almost it didn't quite work with Pogba. He almost did. So, you know, Pogba getting on the ball in the final third with someone like a Ronaldo. Ronaldo, even now, I think scores a lot of goals in the current yeah. United setup. I think he scores a lot of goals because he's just, he's a plug and play striker. You put him in there and surround him with runners, he'll get you goals. Yeah, it'd be interesting whether whether United go for that one. I mean, obviously, the the impact on the wage budget would be um, very large. But United's, United trimmed the wages quite a bit, and they will do again this summer, I'd, I imagine, seeing five or six players leaving. So Solskjaer did a really good job with the clear-out. I've got to say, he did an amazing job with the clear-out. Yeah. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew and, exactly and what he was doing. The, the tough one now is is David De Gea and, and whether they're able to clear him out because it makes no sense him continuing to be at the club. Uh, we, we were looking in uh, at the the data. He uh, he's something like um, eight point five minus eight point five post shot xg um, against. So you know uh, he's let in. That is he's let in eight and a half goals more than the average more keeper should, would yeah. The, should. Yeah, based on you know the post shot um, xg. So you know the quality of the shot. So that you know, is that's heartbreaking. It, it, it is heartbreaking, was. and it's a it's a stunning it's a stunning drop. So you know the thing that he was brilliant at the you know the the superhuman saves has gone uh, and the the other stuff hasn't compensated for it either so um but i i you know my sense speaking to people is that they they're not very sure about henderson either and i think we've seen that on the pitch um so that donna rumors available he's available yeah and he's not that expensive for Elliot. sort of six or make, seven it makes million. far too much sense for united to go to him it yeah. makes far too much sense i mean look donna rumor going to united is as sensible as arturo vidal leaving Leverkusen and going to United. That didn't happen. Like, all the... the, the United's past is littered with sensible signings they didn't make. Like, like Yuri Tielemans. Yeah. Yuri Tielemans was right there. I mean, this was... Oh, I was The amount of WhatsApp groups I've probably been kicked out of by friends of mine because of Yuri Tielemans. I'll be saying it to my dying day, I think. Oh no! Um, I mean, he gave, he gave a six months on loan at Leicester as a showcase to tell everybody that he should be signed. And, and I'm on manoeuvres. Yeah, it was yeah. right there. Oh god, it's devastating. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that's the that's the interesting thing about United this summer. The the fixes are are possible. Um, you know, both in terms of it, it's very obvious what the club needs, and and they've had plenty of time now with. Murtar and the new team to to set their targets and to, you know work out what they're going to spend and and you know in theory because of the way the UEFA have structured FFP this season although United have lost sort of two hundred million in revenue they can just replace it with equity they could just sell a load yeah. of shares and, yeah. and replace it so it's it'd be very easy for United to actually take advantage of a lot of clubs I don't they won't do it like that but they could do if if there was a 
benevolent dictator yeah. in charge of the club, then that's exactly what they would do. Well, what's funny about United is that in terms of transfer business, there is someone there who really knows what they're doing. You don't bring in Bruno Fernandes if you don't know what you're doing. There is someone, I always, when I look at United, and I, see, I, I almost see kind of rival camps, if I can say this. So you've got the kind of United where you've got part of the, you know, part of the ownership structure where they're happy to like fund a re-election da- a campaign for Donald Trump. Like you've got people doing fundraisers for Trump in the United ownership. But then you've also got people in United who are like seeing Marcus Rashford go through a difficult time and they're supporting him socially and politically. This is, it's almost like this rival kind of power basis ideologies. And within that, and I think there's, from the same part, I, would, I wouldn't be surprised if there are people within United who tacitly support some of the protests we've seen in relation to the European Super League and beyond. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And within, and within the United camp, within the United club, and it's such a fascinating club for that reason, it's almost like the Vatican. It's opaque, but you know there are like different things going on. So, for example, the signing of Fernandez. when I saw that, I was like, you know what? United might just be all right. Because that man came in and galvanised the front line of United in a way that I haven't seen I don't want to draw comparisons with like other great playmakers who come. I don't think Fernandez deserves the comparison because they put too much pressure. But Fernandez's effect on United is absolutely astonishing. And I'm, I'm, I'd like to see what that. I don't know who recruited Fernandez, but I want to see who, what, what move they make next because they know what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, I actually think. I mean, have, having had a chat to some of the the stats people who work. Um, with the club, you know, they, they've got an outside agency they use and, and a, quite a significant department now mm. um, using an, analytics. And, and so, you know, I think they have all the information they need. And mm. um, f- for whatever reason, that hasn't married up with the financial side of the club um, to move quickly and to to behave in the way that you'd expect a club that's, that's although it's listed on the stock exchange, it's basically single family owned, and they don't have yeah. to answer to anyone. They don't, you know, the the negotiation process process should be quick, but actually, it's been very very slow. And um, and we saw that with Fernandez, where it took, you know, they waited six months for five million euros of savings, which doesn't make any sense. This is at the all. thing. This is the thing. If you hate, if this is the weird thing about the Glazers, right? This is the weird thing about them. Even though they've loaded lots of debt on the club, they could still have won a lot more. By just saying, we're just here to raid the club, okay? But we can still put really smart people in charge, you know, how to sure, run the football yeah. side. And get players at a good price with a good coach and skill them up. And we can just keep winning and just quietly take the money and no one's going to bother because when United are doing well, people don't really complain. Well, they do, but they're it's the a bold, smaller the group. fan base. Yeah, yeah right, right. So this is what makes me so baffled about the Glazers because they've actually wasted a lot of money. They've wasted, they've bought really, really bad and I'm like, you're the Glazers, right? You've got access to like all this capital, all this data. You could go and get the best person to run this. I think the real problem is, I think it's really hard to find people with the brass neck of Ed Woodward who are also football people. I think that's the real yeah. problem. I think it's very, very hard to find people who are shameless, who also know how to run a football club. I think that's extremely difficult. It, it is. And, and the clash, if they'd, brought, if they'd done a buy-in and brought in a, a bunch of ex-players, you know, just for the sake of it, Edwin van der Sar or, or someone, to, a real football person in administrative roles, the clash between the financial uh, Can't control them. Yeah, the glazers the and, and, and control them. Yeah. Yes. You yeah. can't because what happens is at some point, you bring in a fo- an ex-footballer, it's what they've been afraid of the world over. You bring in the ex-footballer and expect them to kind of play to your tune. And the ex-footballer basically 
becomes a bit of a populist and becomes the biggest problem. Yeah, for sure. You know, yeah, and, and John Glazer terrifi- wouldn't be able to control that. Yeah, look how terrified AC Milan had been of Paolo Maldini. Yeah, like they're so terrified of him because they know that he's just this calm, dignified, unruffled power broker, frankly. And they're terrified. You can see they're terrified because these directors are basically, frankly, a lot of them are like, no one really knows who they are, you know? And they're never going to win a battle of popularity. It's why, like, you know, the, the British Prime Minister is so terrified about Marcus Rashford because he knows there will never be a, there's never a universe in which Marcus Rashford loses a popularity contest to Boris Johnson. Keeps trying it, but it's not working. Yeah. Um, uh, Barack Obama's bestie, of course. Now, yeah, that's uh, it's, wild. It, it's astonishing how far. I mean, I know that was set up by the publishers, but it, it, you know, the the fact that Obama took the meeting and exactly says, says yeah, an awful lot about the reach that, that Marcus has had there. His and, reach in America is extraordinary as well. People are really clocking it there too. You notice it, yeah. We I, I had a lot. chat with uh, Michael Calvin recently, and I, I don't know whether you've had a chance to read his new book. Um, I've not. No, 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 no. But it's uh, it's an account of like his his reckoning um, with his love of the game and 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 or you know falling out of love with the game in many ways you know he's a a journalist that's um followed the game for 40 years um 80 countries yeah yeah you know beautiful sort of writing style as well if, if you enjoy his stuff and and um uh you know he he's had this moment like many of us have had you know at the reckoning with the glazers at united uh, but other owners around um, England and Europe, the influx of private equity and and um, you know uh, U.S. capital into European football and and its impact on on the game we love and and how the vulture capitalists have sort of you know taken over and and yeah, uh, the profit motive has come in where it, where you know for a hundred years it was the local businessman done good who. Um, you know, took his large fortune and turned it into a small one by owning the local football club. And, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, so I, I think that was an interesting conversation. Like at this moment in time, not prescient because, of course, the European Super League was the, like the epitome of this this idea that you know only a few elite would would capture all the value in in the game and take all the money. But but just like kind of reckoning with with what it means to us now, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I find myself constantly having to compartmentalize. I, I hate what the club. United has become and what football yes. as an industry is, but love the product on the pitch and you know, remain completely addicted to it as a result. And I would call it something like church, to be honest. Like, you know, you can be a Catholic and still critique the Vatican and have no time for a lot of the bishops. And but then you're like, well, I've got a relationship with, you know, the higher power, or whatever. That that almost like it maybe almost makes your devotion more pure because you're like, it doesn't matter what. Like these owners can come and go, these infrastructures come and go, but ultimately I'll always be a United fan. And that's almost like what people are returning to. That would have been a difficult manoeuvre to pull off emotionally, I think, if the Super League had gone ahead. I think, frankly, if that European Super League had happened, to me, if that happens, then Manchester United effectively no longer exist as the club that I understand them. And I think a lot of people, I I had a chat with quite a few people, um, including the man from your parish, Mr. Ansorsch, and a lot of people were like, I, I, I really would struggle with this. I'd really struggle with. I, I think you're right. I mean, it, it, would, it would be the, although in, in many ways, you know, these owners the, of these super clubs and, and um, some of the nation state clubs treat their, the clubs like franchises anyway, it would be the yeah. kind of solidification of that. I think the Super League was fascinating because, I, you know, the, you talk about the backlash. We heard from the Glazers more in two months than we'd heard from the previous, what, 16 years? 
But the fact that Joel Glazer actually came out and said something, I was like, this is extraordinary. It feels unprecedented. It shows that these people actually, in many ways, their mistake was to say something in a funny way, in a weird kind of way, because they'd kept up this veneer of, like, we don't say anything, we don't... And they kind of, like... Again, they were damned they do, did, damned they didn't, but they showed a weakness there in speaking, I thought. They showed a real weakness. And to me, it was like, these people aren't as confident in what they're doing to the club. They are very aware. That's it. The, the video of like one of the glazers in the car park yeah, uh, being asked questions. And I was right. like, why hasn't this happened 10 years ago? Yes. Why is this? I mean, I'm sure some journalists have tried, no disrespect, but not enough, not enough really. Um, but yeah, fascinating. It is. And, and then I wanted to, to sort of finish our conversation thinking a little bit about um, yeah. there's some international football going to happen this summer. And uh, in the middle of a global pandemic, oh my God. we're going to be flying teams all around the place in 11, 11 cities, I think, throughout Europe, the Euros. And uh, I think uh, just as we're recording, Comna uh, Ball have said that the uh, um, Copa America will happen in Brazil. Uh, the place with the most COVID cases in, in, um, in the continent. Unbelievable. 460,000 deaths, probably probably an undercount in Brazil. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's definitely, it's, yeah, it's, it's astonishing, it's really. I, I, I was half expecting um, that, uh, that Qatar or, or Saudi would uh, put their hands up and say, yeah, we'll host it for you, no problem. Um, right. You know, I don't the, know whether the, this is better or worse than that. <laughs> I think that these, what is interesting about these sort of petro states that run these clubs now, they can really just wait for low-hanging fruit. Like... The European Super League is a thing that can be held in abeyance until there's another sort of bout of economic desperation. And then someone can come in and be like, we'll offer this. Mm-hmm. Not a European Super League, but clubs can play an additional tournament. So have your league campaign, but maybe just trim your leagues by six clubs. Yeah. Oh, six clubs. Oh, we're not going to miss all. We're not going to miss all. You know, because, you know, you, we know deep down there's a lot of owners that are like, oh, we wouldn't miss those five clubs. So actually, this is what I think will happen. Trim your leagues from like 20 to 15. This is me just spitballing here. Trim your leagues from 20 to 15. And in return for you trimming your, your top division to 2015, the extra like games, give those to us. Give those fixtures to us. And we'll put them into a separate league played over like a summer, a knockout thing. And that is how the European Super League happens. It happens as a parallel tournament. Because what happened with this, they tried to be too bold with it. Yeah. And they didn't seek consensus. They didn't offer enough money in the back channels to the right people. They didn't seed it enough. They didn't make enough big journalistic hires. What they should have done, this is really cynical, actually. If I was going to set up a European Super League, I'd set up a... This, oh, my God, this is terrible. I'm, I can't... You know, I'm, if I say this on the thing, I'm giving, giving them ideas. They're going to be like, yeah, we copied his blueprint. <laughs> if I was going to set up a European Super League, I'd have created a complete parallel media infrastructure. Sure, yeah. I would have created my own Sky Sports my own athletic, my own, um, you know what I mean? I would, I would have basically created, I would have poached all the journalists I could and offered them like absurd amounts of money, oh. broadcasters, and I would have had it all ready to go. Like that's why some like BN or like Qatar, they're well-placed to actually bankroll that. If they ever decided they wanted, if a Petro state decided they wanted to run a European Super League, it would be a very different story. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's revenue generating in a way that owning a club perhaps isn't and um you know your five your five billion euros or whatever it, the setup fee was yeah. that um jp morgan were going to put in it isn't much to to those yeah no, no. I, I was i was kind of interesting um 
fascinated uh, with how badly the launch went and the, the fact that they didn't actually appear to have a broadcast partner on board. And, you know... It, there's an argument to say they probably, maybe they don't. They just need the infrastructure. They just need uh, they AWS just had a loan. or That's something. They just had a loan in the end, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's what they had. It, it, was, it was kind of weird how paper paper thin, you know, the, the actual plans were. Um, was, you, you may well be right. It, it, will, it will come back in different guise at some point. The International Champions Cup may expand. I mean, what, whatever right. it is, yeah. That's all terraforming. That is all terraforming. That's all getting people used to the idea of divorcing the clubs from the context. It's it's yes. weaning. We're all we're kind of being weaned onto solids, you know. We're like babies being given a new diet. They're weaning us onto it. That's what's happening. Um, which, which, in a way, is is happening with the Euros, isn't it? I mean, it's all across Europe. It's not in one place. We we're not going to get the sort of. Oh, we weren't going to get it anyway. Um, given it's absolutely given cursed, isn't it? We're closing our borders. We're closing our borders to the EU and open our borders to football and COVID. <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> Sorry, it, probably can't it, say it in the podcast, but it, that's how it. No, no, it's amazingly dumb. Um, and we'll, we'll see whether, you know, the bubbles survive all this crisscrossing of Europe that's, that's going to happen. I mean, it was interesting. There was a River Plate game recently in which they had, I think, 14 or 15 players out. They, they managed to get 11 players on the pitch, but one of them was a broken Outfielder. midfielder who played in goal, who kept a clean sheet. Um, you know, we, we could get this and, you know, they're going to have 26-man squads over the summer and but and I, sh- I assume that's to account for any outbreaks Absolutely. that they what, have. What happens in the final? We missed the semi-final final because both, both teams are in quarantine. I, I don't know how that there's no rest day, there's no sort of reserve days or anything like that. It's the tournament. So um, I'm concerned about these Euros, actually. I'm not going to lie to you, Ed. I mean, of course, I'll watch the games because I'm a football fan and all the rest of it, but I look at it and just think, this shouldn't be happening. It definitely shouldn't. shouldn't be happen- yeah. for, for a thousand different reasons, it should not be happening. Um, and I mean, then, a, yeah. and then the Copa America is, feels. I mean, it'll be played in Brazil. Uh, you know, there's plenty of infrastructure there to to host a tournament the size of Copa America. But, but <laughs> I don't know how they're going to survive the bubbles. Um, they haven't had the planning, you know, of the training centres and the hotels that you typically have for a tournament of this size. And um, it, it feels like a disaster waiting to happen. Which you know, once you've sacked off two potential hosts you know wild it's meant to be Colombia oh my goodness it's just an absolute Ryan says it a thousand times on studies what are we doing we're in a pandemic we're in a pandemic I can't I mean you can't you can lead a horse to water everyone knows what this is I mean it's wild Ed it's wild I just hope people get through it safely in terms of the actual football uh, I mean Portugal Germany looking interesting now because Harvest has got his tail up after that win and so has Werner um, I think it comes a tournament who early weird, you know, I think Hansi Flick in charge of this Germany, I think it's a different proposition um, because he brings the freshest approach and also he brings the resources and the know-how from Bayern. Um, yeah. And Portugal, Portugal looking dangerous, I think. They're the kind of what I call the scorpion in the sock. They're the dangerous one. The dangerous one. Be interesting whether they're, you know, how open they are. But but I do I do wonder if this is not a tournament uh, the Euros, where the teams that have had, you know, fewer miles through the legs of... Oh, like of, Greece, Greece in 04. Yeah, maybe, you know, may, maybe maybe one of those... Um, yeah, and, and that is true of Portugal, actually. Many many of their players are not necessarily sort of, you know, 60 game a season, um, having played in the top teams. You know, Bruno Fernandes is, and he's shot as a result, but... Oh, he's absolutely shattered. He's on fumes. He's been on fumes about three months, though. 
Yeah, I mean, he had 60 games last season. Oh, he had 58 this season, I think Bruno did. Um, and um, something similar last season and uh, and uh, like three weeks off in between them. So it's... Um, also, bless him, he doesn't play like... He doesn't pace himself. That is not a man that paces himself. Like, you can imagine Bruno Fernandes is probably like undefeated table tennis champion for the last year and a <laughs> half. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he doesn't, he doesn't strike me as the kind of person that does... Half measures. We were speculating, uh, why is it that, um, given all he's done this season, 28 goals, 14 assists, you know, he's, he's, uh, uh, I think his exchange is off the charts, you know, he's, he's involved in everything good that United do. Given that, why did his fellow players vote Luke Shaw as player of the season? Um, that is extremely, exactly yeah, that's, is a, like that's in a, the dressing room to have. Uh, that's an excellent point, you know. That's an excellent, excellent point. And I think it's extremely... I'm always really... The Players' Player of the Year is actually one of the most political awards and I'm not, I'm not always sure it should exist. Like, when, when Ronaldo left uh, Real Madrid, I always remember thinking and contrasting that with... When I left Madrid, it's always interesting seeing who says goodbye on social media and who doesn't. Because you, you can't fake that. Uh, Modric winning the Ballon d'Or was extremely interesting and the responses to that and the joy of Modric winning... yeah there's a sense that Modric had carried maybe a lot of baggage for players that perhaps didn't run as much as they should have done in certain areas and were kind of padding their stats. And yeah, the Bruno Fernandes thing is interesting. I think it's one of those ones you can imagine people going, oh, he's giving the big one about leadership on TV, but players can lead themselves. You know that whole, when Mourinho used to do this thing about, Mourinho used to do this thing about, I've taken attention off the players and thinking, but players, some of them like attention. Like, why are you taking attention off Sergio Ramos? You can get away with it at Chelsea because the Chelsea players weren't that big yet. But you go to Real Madrid and go, I'm taking the focus off Ike Casillas. Casillas is like, he's not an egotist, but he likes, he likes getting praise. And you come out and you beat a team like, you know, 3-1 away from home and it's all Mourinho and Mourinho. They're like, hang on a minute, who was actually playing? And I wonder if sometimes Fernandez, he absorbs so much of the attention that it's almost like, you've got to understand what Luke is doing. So Luke Shaw... Frankly, as well, shout out to Luke Shaw. I think this part it says that man recovered from a horrifying injury, and also, frankly, bullying. That oh, yeah. man was that man was brutalized. The way that man was talked to by Mourinho and, and, and by Van Hart, Van Hart. Yeah. The way that man they went after that man's weight, body image. It's actually shameful. He's come through a lot, and he's still fairly young. Shaw. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's been. I, I, I'm really, really. Um, Delighted for him. And just before we go, everyone will remember that was the PSG injury he got. The PSV, he got the injury against PSV. And Memphis Depay and Luke Shaw was one of the best young left flanks in Europe. It worked so well because Depay was operating the inside left position, Shaw was overlapping, and it looked beautiful. And that qualifying round leading up to that PSV game, Luke Shaw was our best player. Yeah. He was, he was erupting. He was becoming the best fullback we'd seen. He was becoming the best all-round left back we'd had there for since like Irwin I think actually I, he was I that good he, uh, he I mean as an 18 year old he had everything in the locker you know he, he had he, you know there, there's some parts of his game needed maturing um you know the defensive side fine that's what you get with a 18 year old and but the attacking side was all there and it's taking him for for all the reasons you know post-injury the people he surrounded himself with um mm. you know the the brutalizing effect of having Mourinho as your manager. It's taking him yeah. five years to to get back to where he was. But um I, you know, 
desperately surprised. Uh, I, I didn't think it would happen, and and so it was interesting, you know. And players know all that context too, and yeah, um, right. and it was interesting that they voted him um, the Manchester United Player of the Season, given everything that Bruno had done. But um, Shaw will be at the Euros, I guess, with England. Bruno certainly with Portugal. Um, is it kind of interesting looking at the United squad? There's not that many uh, going to be away this summer, and and uh, so there'll be a, a group back at Carrington. I mean, Cavani will be. Hopefully not getting COVID. Looking, in. looking beautiful somewhere. Ah, <laughs> as always. <laughs> oh, Edins- oh, Edinson. <laughs> I call them Edinsexuals. You know, this kind of like this genre, genre of, you know, um, Cavani is the only person they're attracted to. Uh, yeah, beautiful man. What a signing he was. And also, like, let me just say this. I was wrong about that because I, I saw Cavani being signed and I was like, ah, oh, has he still got all of that? But it worked. And I now, of course, just wish that he'd been signed five years earlier. Yeah, or even yeah. just in June. Yeah, um, or just in June. Yeah, just to yeah. get him fit, because uh, because yeah. we only really got half a season out of him. Yeah. Anyway, um, all look, good. I, I love talking to you. It's been a while since we um, since we've seen each other. Since good um, chin work, that yeah, appreciate how, it. How long have you been in Berlin now? It's five almost years seven or so. years. Almost seven, oh, seven years. Seven years. Wow, I know, time. I know, I know. Time really flies, yeah. Um, I think the last two times I was in Berlin, it was a flying visit. I did think about reaching out, um, but oh, you should have a flying time. visit for work. Yeah, well, next time I'm over in Europe, I, I love Berlin as a city. It's, um, I think you describe it in your your book as the sort of uh, rebel child. Yeah, um, exactly, the rebellious child that somehow made a, a good life for itself. Yeah. I, I I did the thing that um, the last time I was there for fun that um, all tourists do when they're there for fun of uh, drinking far too much absinthe, uh, ending oh up in the uh, Kunsthaus, that sort of artist collective that was around <laughs> a few years back, and then some techno clubs. So as you do when you're in Berlin. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But there's a lot more to it as well. So <laughs> you oh, Not look, much uh, more, no, Jake. Yeah. You look well. Listeners Thanks, can't man. see that because it's a podcast, well. but, um, you know, glad, glad life is going well and you're keeping busy. Thanks so much, man. Likewise, man. Great to see you doing well and flourishing. Um, I think the last match I saw you in person was probably like 2012, maybe? Yeah, it might be. Yeah. This is so, was it Soho, I think, maybe? 2012, along with uh, Nick, and that, Nick and those guys, I think. Um, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Long, long time, long time ago. 2012, 2013, I think. That sounds yeah, about right. Yeah. Got you back in touch. Uh, and... Yeah, keep up the great work. Well, with the podcast, if you're ever, in, um, ever on the West Coast, I'll I'll, uh, I'll take you to the Sounders. Um, not very good, the Sounders. It's uh, I mean they're a good team for MLS, um, but yeah, MLS yeah, is sure. um, championship level football. The variable so. quality, yeah, variable yeah. quality. Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah. Well, good, my dude. But it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, and yeah, keep up the great work. And like I said, with the, while I'm here, the podcast is obviously the Rantcast was the initial name for me, but no question about that, it's a great rebrand. Um, it's a great name and you two are doing great work and I'm in touch actually with Paul quite a lot on the old WhatsApp. Good. We often like yes. rant to each other. So yeah, we are, we're still ranting. The good, two of us. good stuff. Like, <laughs> it has to happen. Well, good luck with the, the launch um, of um, Striking Out um, later this summer, I guess, and and um, your recent books and I don't know whether you're producing any more, but it's BBXO. BBXO, yeah, we're putting out, we've got some money from the German government actually. Okay. We've got, we got quite a bit of money to put out an album as a soundtrack to the book I wrote about Berlin because a lot of okay. the songs were written at the same time. So we're actually going to put out an album this autumn. Oh, putting out our first tune oh, in about a week, I think. So, yeah, that's Great. coming I'll out. Great, I'll look too. for that. So, um, thanks, man. Best of luck with all that and many thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. Thanks a lot, man. All good. <laughs>